0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to church. Thanks for being a part of the family this morning. Um, It really is truly an honor and a joy uh, to be a part of this community every week. Um, I find this incredibly refreshing. I don't know if you do, like, you you know, for for many people, church can become sort of like an obligation. Maybe if you're a kid, you know, I get that. Um, And you kind of go out of duty, but this is really incredibly life-giving for me. Like, I really enjoy being with you people. I love calling you my family and my church family, and so I'm, I'm grateful you're here. I know in the room this morning, there's probably people um, all over the place when it comes to uh, where you are in your spiritual journey or, or where you are as you gather in this place uh, in your pursuit of Jesus, and we welcome that. We love that, and I'm praying this morning that, that God's word is going to encourage all of us Um, But this past week, I had the chance to spend some time in the wonderful city of Chicago with a few of my best friends from college. There's three guys. Two of them happen to be church planters um, across the country, one in Brooklyn, one in San Diego, actually two of the most unreached uh, cities in America when it comes to gospel presence. My other friend works in the financial sector in Houston. And we sat down and we started to talk about this kind of buzzword in today's culture. It's actually called the word is culture. And so if you've heard that word, a lot of people kind of like overuse that word. You know anybody who's always talking with the word culture? Um, So it can be kind of overused and oversaturated. But at the same time, it can kind of be um, underutilized um, and really glossed over. And so it's it's a really important word. And so we started to talk about this, this idea of of culture, As one of my friends in the financial sector, he, he had a lot of pushback on this. So he was kind of sharing some interactions with some of his employees and in the company that he runs. And what we realized was it wasn't that he didn't like culture. It's just he didn't like the culture that his employees uh, were implementing in his organization. And the reality is um, every one of us, whether you work at a church or an organization or a business, you experience... Culture. It's what you feel, um, it's what you see, it's what you hear. Uh, when you walk into an environment like this, more than an organization's strategy, what you actually experience is its culture. You can have great, you know, nuanced mission statements, but at the end of the day, what people experience when they walk in your room is your culture. And so Um, I wanted to throw up this definition to kind of guide our time this morning to help us kind of orient around this idea of culture. And I found this definition online that I really liked. And here's what it says about culture. Organizational culture um, is that it is the collection of values, expectations, and practices that guide and inform the actions of all team members. That's not. There it is. And, um, Organizational culture, the collection of values, expectations, and practices that guide and inform the actions of all team members. Okay, So this is what your core values are as an organization. It's the DNA of a church. It's what you experience, what you expect, what you practice. And here's what we know. This can swing to be incredibly healthy or, in many cases, incredibly toxic. Uh, We live in a cultural moment when it comes to the church that a lot of very toxic cultures are being revealed uh, where churches get so out of alignment with God's heart for the church and Christ's values for the church and expectations and practices. Um, And what we see is this wreaks havoc on people in their lives. Many people who walk away from the church not because they don't really want to follow Jesus anymore, But because what they experienced was so toxic that, you know, as the saying goes, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a real saying. I don't know if I'm not throwing any babies out of bathwater. I'm just saying that's a real saying. So it got me thinking as I was praying this week um, and chewing on this idea is what is Jesus culture? Like As we think about this idea, as we study our text, what is Jesus' culture? What is it that Jesus values in ministry? What is it that he expects from his followers? What is it that he hopes the church practices um, and that our community is formed around and experiences? Because it, it's absolutely crucial, guys, that we uh, value and expect and practice the things that Jesus values. And expects and hopes for us to model in his practices. Because here's what can happen. Um, We can become more in alignment with the culture of the world than we are with the culture of Jesus. And what we're going to learn today as we study the scripture is that the culture of Jesus' ministry and kingdom is antithetical to the culture of the world. Completely antithetical. So, John chapter 7 is where we are. Um, we're cruising through, uh, the gospel of John at a really slow pace. It's still a cruise though, windows down in the summer, sweating, John seven. That's where we are. Some of you feel like we're sweating through John. That's fine. Um, we're going slow. Okay. We're just, it's a golf cart cruise through John. And here we are in chapter seven. Um, now I want to say this. It's interesting this morning. With all of the elements of our gathering, how God has aligned these this morning, you know, in light of everything that's been going on in our country this week, all of the division, um, all of the hostility with the Supreme Court ruling. It's really interesting that we come across this text this week. And I, and I want you to know that from my heart, um, is that this, this is just where God has us. And so I want to learn from him. I want to hear from him. I want you to hear from him. Um, and, and not simply uh, from me. So in John chapter 7, here's what we read in verse 1. The text reads After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brothers said to him, These are his earthly brothers. Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, because, but it does hate me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. All right, so... In our text today, if you were with us the last few weeks, we're coming out of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, a very important miracle happens. Does anybody remember this miracle? The food? Okay, yes. Jesus multiplies one guy's lunch pail and feeds a ton of people with food. It was bread, um, which is a food group, I think. Um, Delicious food. So Jesus feeds... The 5,000, what we actually learn is with women and children, it was more like fifteen to 20,000 people. After this miracle, they followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. But what we learn is they weren't actually interested in following Jesus. They wanted what Jesus could give to them. They wanted another meal. They wanted that provision. If you had free food at your hands you know, constantly, who wouldn't want that? So they follow Jesus, and Jesus throws out this crazy sermon in John 6, where he tells the crowd to eat his flesh and drink his blood, okay? PR-wise, probably not the best message. Um, Don't repost that one on social media. People will not know what you're talking about. Well, what we find is that the crowd completely dissolves. The thousands of people who follow Jesus across the sea, they leave Jesus, and he's left alone with just his 12 disciples. What we find is that after that, after the crowd is completely dismissed, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and Judea, and he hides out in this area called Galilee. Galilee was kind of like the place where nobody goes. It's the Podunk town. It's the Pike Creek, Texas. Nobody hangs out there. No one goes there. So everybody's trying to kill Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea, so he's just chilling in Galilee for what appears to be about six months. He's with his family. If you don't know this, Jesus had... Three brothers, I believe. Um, James, Jude. I cannot remember the third one. I should uh, go to seminary. So he had some brothers. Actually had a sister as well. That's kind of crazy. So he has his earthly family. He's hanging out with them here in Galilee. And that's where we pick up this story. And so it's really important that you remember this. After about six months have passed, Jesus has lost the entire crowd. They have been dismissed. They are no longer following him. His church membership went from thousands to 12, okay? And in this space, it's time now to head to the next festival, which is called uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this festival, this Jewish festival, is one of the primary ones where the Israelites would celebrate. I don't know why. They, they would celebrate their wandering through the wilderness. So for 40 years, the Israelites had no home. They were heading towards the promised land. And during this festival, they would set up tents or booths to sleep in for a week. And they would celebrate how God provided for them supernaturally through the wilderness. This is actually the invention of camping as well. Um, Was during this festival. How many of you love camping? Raise your hand if you like camping. You're lying. Nobody loves camping. Okay. I can't get behind that fad. How many of you would classify yourself as indoorsy? Go ahead, be proud of it. Praise God, you have an air conditioner. You have to pay to sleep on the ground camping. That's a real thing. You pay people to sleep on the ground in a bag. That's a thing. So this is where camping was invented. Um, It was a a celebration somehow, um, even with that. And so in this space, what happens here? With Jesus' brothers and his family, as you have the context surrounding what's happening here, I want you to hear how Jesus' brothers persuade him or their advice when it comes to what he should do with his ministry. Look back at verse 2. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brothers say to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then I love this little editor note from John. For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus' brothers, his earthly brothers, are going to give Jesus some advice on how he should do his ministry, okay. Let's just stop there and say, probably not the way to go to counsel God. You know, hey God, I really think I, I think I have a better idea, strategy than you do. But this happens in our lives. So here's what brothers, his brothers do. They say, look, Jesus, you know, here's the deal, um, you've you've lost the crowds. You know, you're here to win the masses. You know, you're trying to launch this church on the earth, spread your kingdom. But here's the deal. You've kind of lost everyone. There's only 12 of us anymore. And this doesn't really make sense. You know, why would you hang out in secret? Why would you chill in Galilee if you're trying to spread the message uh, to the masses? This doesn't make sense. You know, that message the flesh and blood piece, you know, we're going to have to shift that. We're going to have to dilute that a little bit. PR's really low right now after that message. Instagram following dipped down a little bit. Okay, so we're going to have to change that, adjust that, if we're going to get the crowd to start following you again. So, you know, here's what's going to happen. The festival's shelter thousands upon thousands of Jews are going to descend upon Jerusalem, and this is where the masses are going to be. So if we are planning our ministry you know, celebration to go win the crowd again, this is the place to be. Everyone's going to be there. We can go in. You can do one of those miracles again with the food. People are going to be hungry, and we're going to get everybody on Team Jesus. This is what his brothers say. Now, it's not a bad idea. I mean, if we're thinking, this isn't horrible strategy. But here's what we find. Look look at verse 4. No one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself. But I love this. With a small editor note, John says, P.S., though. Not even his brothers believed in him. So, meaning, the message of the unbelieving world, the message of our flesh, when it comes to how Jesus should do ministry, or how we should do ministry, is this. Go big. Go public. Build your brand. Reach the masses. Bigger is better. That is... The message or the culture of an unbelieving world, according to John, who speaks on behalf of Jesus' brothers. Here's what's interesting. If you remember last week in John 6, Izzy was talking about this idea. And there's this verse in John 6, 63, and it says that it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. But oftentimes what happens is the flesh drives our decisions, hoping to produce life. But Jesus has already communicated to us that your flesh, your, your worldview, your values, your practices, your methods, apart from the spirit, actually cannot produce life. And so when Jesus talks about the world, or when scripture talks about this phrase, the world, um, he's communicating about this type of thinking, this collection of values, expectations, and practices. That, that guide and inform our decisions apart from the Spirit. So in Scripture, in 1 John, it actually says that you cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world. It actually says if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Now, it doesn't mean the people of the world. We know God is after the pe- every person for God so loved the world that he sent his son. But he's talking about the people of the world. What, what John is talking about is the thinking, the value system, the expectations and practices of the culture of the world. So the world's collection of values is antithetical to the kingdom of God. And we see a very clear and distinct culture here between the culture of Jesus in the culture of the unbelieving world. And here's, here's my first point if you're taking notes, is this. Point one, Jesus' culture of ministry is the willingness to be obedient in obscurity. Jesus' culture of ministry, his value system, his practices, is the willingness to be obedient in obscurity. We'll come back to Jesus' brothers. They think to themselves, why are we hiding out in Galilee? Why are you here? There's no one here. I don't understand this. We need to go to the masses. We need to go to the festival. We need to win the crowd back. But what we learn from Jesus, and we know what we know about him throughout scripture, is this that he does not care about people's opinions, applause, or approval. Jesus will not be persuaded by your opinion, your applause, or your approval. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Probably one of the most uh, primary culture-driven texts in the Bible. Here's what it says in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in, what's that word, secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In this same chapter, Jesus breaks the same principle down for prayer, for giving, for giving for ministry. He talks about the secret place. In John 7, verse 4, his, his brothers say, why are you doing these things in secret? You need to go public. But here's what we learn. God, what he ultimately cares about is who you are in the secret place. He cares about your obedience and obscurity more than your public platform. He cares about who you are When no one else is around, as we just sang, he cares about your heart. He cares about the inner man, not just your external practice. So he is infinitely more invested in how we obey him and love him and serve him in obscurity more than we would draw a platform uh, from the masses. I was reading an article this week about the uh, Generation Gen Z that's right after millennials. And um, I read this article that was interesting that it said um, when it comes to social media and, and all other types of media, the way Gen Z often approached those is not actually for a, a, a tool or form or medium for connection or community, but it's actually to build a brand. So for millennials, when social media came on the scene, it was kind of driven – with this community idea of, you know, connection and connecting with people, online and different things, not saying that it is that. I'm just, that was how it was started. It's become, I don't even know what it is anymore. Um, but the way Gen Z approaches social media now is not really as a tool of communication or connection, but really as a medium to build a brand. So we see our lives now, not as a means for relationship, but as a brand to build. Now that's understandable if you're a business, It's understandable if you have to market yourself and you're you're selling product or you're an entrepreneur. All those things are completely understandable. But when we see our lives as brands to promote, um, to advertise, it can be really difficult to hear a teaching like this and roll with Jesus' value system to say, okay, um, are you willing to obey me in obscurity? When the world tells us, no, you need to build your brand. Uh, You need to build your platform. You need to reach the masses. You're not doing anything with your life. And Jesus seems to present a completely different worldview. He was obedient um, in obscurity, even when his brothers tried to parade him into the public. So a question for you is, are you willing to do ministry in obscurity? like an audience of one? Are you willing to serve and lead with no audience but God? Are you willing to be celebrated by no one but God? Are you willing to be misunderstood or persecuted or ostracized by everyone for your faith, but knowing alone that God is pleased with it? Are you willing? See, that, that's, that's where it gets tricky. Because I completely cool to stand up here or start a church or preach your sermon. And it's like, okay, but you know, at least I've got a little bit of a following or this or that. But what if, what if it was truly an audience of one? Are you willing to do ministry in obscurity? The culture teaches us go big, go massive, build your brand. But Pete Scazzaro, he says it like this, the things that people applaud in your life are often the very things that will wreck your soul. The things that people applaud in your life are often the very things that will wreck your soul. I had a friend of mine um, who was a pastor in a very remote town. I actually mentioned the name of that town, Pipe Creek, Texas. Has anybody ever heard of Pipe Creek, Texas? A couple people. Two. Um, no creeks. Um, or pipes. Actually, probably a few pipes. Um, and incredibly godly man, incredibly godly family, and he was called to pastor this church in Pipe Creek. It was probably 20, 25 people in this church, um, and it was, it was really in like a, a very remote area. I think the population of the town was like 500 people. I'm not really sure if they even track population there. Um, but I remember just spending so much time with him and hearing like his heart, his gifting, his anointing, and just often thinking, why are you here? Like, you know, you should be doing more with your life, or, or you should be reaching more people, or you should be out in the city, or you should be here. And I had to, you know, kind of take a step back as I think those kind of things to realize that, once again, that's, that's my version of success. That's actually a very worldly cultural value of success of what we should expect from people. But if we're not careful, even as followers of Jesus, that same type of thinking permeates our mind, and it's not how God determines success, and not what he values. And so for this minister to spend 25 years in some small, remote town pastoring a few people, in fact, could have looked like complete success to God. Just being obedient with what God had called him to do, obeying in obscurity. So we we see this value, this cultural value of Jesus. Here's the second thing we see, though, in our text. Point number two is this. Jesus' culture is willing to pursue God's timeline, will, and ways over our own. Jesus' culture, his value system, his practices, is willing to pursue God's timeline, will, and ways over our own. Look at verse 6. Jesus responds to his brother's instruction, and here's what he says. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now, this language is kind of confusing, so I'm going to try to explain this. When Jesus responds to his brothers and he says, my time has not yet arrived, your time is always at hand. Jesus would use this language of his time constantly. And what he was referring to was his impending death upon a cross. Oftentimes, when Jesus uses this language, what he's saying is, hey, the time for me to be revealed to the public to the masses, to fulfill my mission, to reconcile sinners to God on a cross, has not come. And here's what we see. Not only were Jesus' brothers wanting him to do ministry their way, they wanted him to do ministry on their timeline. But Jesus would constantly say, it's not my time. Jesus would heal people and tell them, tell no one what just happened. Because he was constantly not trying to be driven by other people's timeline. Was that a bird? (laughs) Wow. Timeline. I won't be... I'm continuing. So, that happens at our house often. Birds hit the windows. Must be a city thing. Um, So we see that Jesus was insanely in tune with God's timing for his life. He was insanely in tune with God's timing for his life. And so, as we learn in the chapter before, the masses that Jesus feeds, they actually want to make Jesus king. And Jesus sidesteps them and continues to move along. He will not be persuaded by people, not only of their ideas of how he should do ministry, but their timing and ways and will. See, So Jesus says, look, your timing is always at hand. What he means is you do what you want, but I do what God wills. You always do what you want, but I always do what God wills. In fact, that's why Jesus says to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What he's saying is you're just like the world. Of course they love you. You blend in perfectly. You're never saying anything counterintuitive. So me, the world hates me because I will not be persuaded by their ways, their timeline, and their will. You are always on your own time. But I follow God's time. I was having a conversation with a guy this week just about this very idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to submit to Jesus as Lord? And he was just recollecting as he enters the workforce, you know, what does it mean to lay down my will, my ways, my timeline? When we speak of Jesus as Lord, do we really mean that? That's a massive statement to say Jesus is your Lord. Have you ever gone to your boss and said, Lord, I got to talk to you? You know, hey, I'm going to need to get out of here earlier from work. Are you cool with that, Lord? No, you don't say that. You're not making anybody your Lord. In fact, they probably tell you to do something. You're like, I quit, dog. On to the next job. That's kind of today's day and age. It's just like, all right, next job. Because nobody's going to tell me what to do. But Jesus commands lordship. His timeline, his will, and his ways. Now, here's what's crazy about this text. When Jesus uses the word time, my time, the Greek word used there is the word kairos. Everybody say kairos. Okay, so this word in the language of Scripture means an appointed or opportune time. Appointed or opportune. It's a different word than is used in Scripture for chronological time. Like if I'm keeping time, or the seasons of time, or the months and days and years, that's chronological time. But what Jesus is saying, he's not referring to chronological time. He's referring to kairos time, meaning God's appointed and opportune time for me has not come. So here's, here's why this is important. We live in a chronological world, but we as followers of Jesus live with a kairos mindset. We're always in tune with God's appointed and opportune time. Jesus was constantly being pressured by people to live according to a chronological timeline. Hey, it's time, Jesus. You need to get out there. Hey, Jesus, we need to do this. We need to go public. You're really delayed. This is taking forever. We've been in Galilee for six months. What are you doing here? But Jesus doesn't live with that kind of time mindset. He lives with a kairos mindset, Meaning, I'm always in tune with my Father's will for the opportune and appointed time. Jesus was insanely in tune with God's timing for his life. Now, here's how this plays out for us. We're not Jesus, and we don't perfectly know God's will like he did. But here's what happens. The world says, hey, you know what, Macy? You're behind. You should be further ahead. Your job, what are you, a manager, regional manager? (laughs) You should be a district manager by now. Harmony, you're single. Why? Shouldn't you be married? Shouldn't you have like eight kids by now? Your kids should have kids by now. You know, the world tells you, hey, how's that business doing of yours? Oh, that's actually really sad. You should have six figures by now. You know, you should be developed by now. You should have franchised by now. Why haven't you franchised? You know, and what happens is if we're not careful, we live in a chronologically driven Culture, it was a bird. I see the birds coming. But I'm just calling I'm holding them accountable. Here's the deal. But we live with a kairos mindset. Okay? We have to be insanely in tune with God's timing and will in ways for our life and what He deems valuable, not what the world pressures us to value and will and pursue. And so Jesus would not be pushed or pressured according to man's timeline. That's why he says, your time is always at hand. You get to do whatever you want, whenever you want. But guess what? My time is in the Father's hands. Jesus' culture, hear me, Jesus' culture, what he, what he values, what he expects, we see in obscurity is obedience, but the second is submission. He, re, he expects and values submission in all things, Timing, will, and ways. And so here's a question for you. Is there any area of your life you need to entrust to God's timing, will, and ways instead of the pressuring voice of culture? Think about this. Is there any area of your life that you need to renew your spirit towards God's view, timing, and will, and ways for your life? Where are you sensing a deep sense of pressure that's maybe not coming from the voice of God? One of the areas I experienced this, uh, I just talked about, was with singleness. Um, If you guys know anything about my story, I I was single for an incredibly long period of time. And I'm not boasting about that. It was a massive area of insecurity for me. Um, There's not a lot of single pastors in America. Have you ever met any? Izzy's pretty much the only one left in America. And, and praise God, he got a girlfriend. <laughs> but here's the deal. When you live in a world where there's a certain set of expectations and values and practices, then as, a, as you enter that world, you can't help but start to feel insanely pressured by those practices and forces and values. And if you're not careful, you just make decisions simply to go along with what people are telling you you should do rather than actually God leading you to do. Can I get an amen? Come on, somebody's not awake. Get an amen from the pigeons. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> so <laughs> it would be so cool if one just pew, flew through that window. So it was um, really difficult for me. And um, just, just being honest, I was like, really difficult for me to wrestle with. So as I was talking with a friend, are you in tune with God's timing in this season? That doesn't mean you have to know everything. He's not going to tell you everything. You don't need to live, like, terrified to disobey God moment to moment. That's not what I'm saying. But but get a sense for God's spiritual timing in your life, like, No, I'm in a season where I need to slow down. No, I'm in a season where I need to focus on some certain things. No, I'm in a season where I need to get out of debt. I don't need to buy a house, but the world's telling me buy a house. Or, you know what? Actually, I need to buy a house. Whatever that looks like, are you in tune with God's timing? Jesus' culture is obedience, and then we see submission. Are you submitted to me? Don't let the world tell you how you should live. I have a plan for your life. And here's the last piece as we wrap up, is this. Jesus' culture. This is crucial. It's for God's glory, not man's approval. Jesus' culture, what does he value, expect, practice? Here's what we see from Jesus. It's always for God's glory, never for man's approval. Always God's glory, never man's approval. Listen to verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. Now, it sounds like Jesus lied to his brothers. He didn't, okay? Well, We're not going to talk about that a ton, but essentially he's not going to pie into their system. He's going to go later, but secretly, once again. The Jews, verse 11, were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? There was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he's deceiving people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned, learned, educated, since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answers them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. What does Jesus reveal? His culture, his value system, his expectation is that his followers, his church, will constantly be about God's glory and not man's approval. Jesus, in the middle of the festival, gets up to teach. The crowd says, wow, this guy is incredible. He is so educated. Where did he get this learning from? Jesus never went to rabbinical school. The rabbis of the day, Nicodemus, Gamaliel, all these guys that we see in Scripture, they went to school. They went to seminary. Jesus was not self-taught. He was not man-taught. He was God-taught. He says, I have a source, and it's from my Father. I get my instruction straight from Him. And then He says this about the teachers of the day. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Apparently, according to Jesus, all of the rabbis of that day, all of the people who are questioning him, are speaking from their own source, not from God. And what they are revealing is that they are seeking their own glory and not God's. And here's what you need to know. Jesus reveals this idea that if we're not careful, we can do ministry in God's name, but for our own glory. We as a church, we can do ministry in God's name, but for our own glory. And the culture of Jesus is that he gives glory to God alone. And listen, guys, there's this weird Western Christianity movement where it makes celebrities out of pastors and churches and Christian influencers. And it's really easy to misconstrue the heart that desires to move out of the way and give glory to God and to find yourself getting in the way and seeking your own glory. So this happens constantly, and according to Jesus, you know, we have to be very mindful that we are constantly building this culture, this value system, where when you come here, when you're a part of this church, you get a deep sense within you that we are after God's glory and not our own and no person and no name. Well, how do we know that? How do we discern the difference? How can we know if we're here for God's glory or for our own? Well, Jesus gives us two really quick ways, actually. The first is this. He says that the only way you can know if someone's teaching is from God is if you are doing God's will. So check this out. The only way you can smell the flesh is if you're walking in the Spirit. The only way you can sniff out if somebody's real or authentic And actually preaching from the source from God is if you are constantly obeying and abiding in God's will. And here's what happens. When we get into the flesh, we can't really discern what's flesh and spirit anymore. And you can have a guy up here speaking from this word and constantly preaching it. And you have no idea, is this for God's glory or man's glory? And the the difference, the nuance is so subtle. So we have to be a people who are after God's will. But, but the second thing is that he says, you have to be sourced from me. That Jesus, the source of his teaching was the Father. Meaning, we can know if we're after our own glory, if we're speaking from our own source. And just think about this on a practical level as you engage with people as a follower of Jesus, let's say you meet somebody and you're giving them advice, what source are you drawing from? Like where are you deriving that source from? Because according to Jesus, if you're speaking from your own source, you're seeking your own glory. In fact, it's so easy to be driven and persuaded and formed to the culture of the world that we live in, that you take on and embody their value system. And before you know it, when people are asking you advice, you're giving only worldly cultural values, and you're not giving what Jesus teaches. And before you know it, you're being sourced not from Jesus. And in fact, he says, you're seeking your own glory. In Galatians 1.10, Paul talks about this, and he says this. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Meaning, if I were trying to win the world's approval, I would not follow Jesus. So when we give people instruction or teaching, and it's from our own source, our own set of values, our own practices, what Jesus reveals is actually we're after our own glory. We, we, we want people to like us. We want people to be pleased with us. We don't want to offend you. We don't want to get in the way. So, so here, let me just give you what everybody else is saying. You know what? Hey, actually, Jesus is saying, you're after your own glory. That's not, that's not from my glory. Because what's from my glory, according to Jesus, is true. And there is no unrighteousness in it. So this morning, as we close and, and we think about this idea of a, a Jesus culture, um, What is it that Jesus values and expects and and practices embodied in his church? And how can we determine the difference between Jesus' culture and the world's culture? And how can we as a church, as a person, as a follower of Jesus, or maybe somebody considering following Jesus, begin to reform our culture under Jesus? In In this text, as Jesus closes his conversation with the crowd, here's what he says in verse 24. He says this, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. What's he saying there? He's saying your value system is completely backwards. You are judging what you should value and practice and love and pursue on the wrong things. As we just sang in the heart of worship, like, I'm coming back to the heart of of worship. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it when it's all about you. So he's saying your, your judgment, your value system is backwards you're valuing the wrong things. You're practicing the wrong things. You're pursuing the wrong things. And so you've got to stop judging according to outward appearances, and you've got to start judging according to righteous judgment. You've got to value what I value, expect what I expect, practice what I practice. How do you do that? The verse we, we, uh, we meditated on in prayer, um, Romans chapter 12. I want to throw this up here for us to chew on as we close. And here's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Meaning, how do you take on a Jesus culture, a value system, expectations and practices that align with the kingdom? Well, don't be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will know what is my will. You will know what's acceptable. You will know what's perfect. And so you will no longer be conformed, you will be transformed. But it's going to require every day renewing your mind. How do you do that? How many people this week got off Instagram? just deleted Instagram altogether, a couple. Izzy was talking about this earlier. If you're not careful, guys, here's what'll happen. You will disciple yourself with social media all day, and before you know it, you'll exit the social media app, and you will have a particular worldview that it has formed you in. And so we have to be incredibly careful to renew our minds on the right things. We have to be incredibly careful that as we walk through this life and and culture speaks to us constantly of what we should value and expect and practice, that we're constantly combating that and renewing our mind with the things of Jesus. Otherwise, we will never know how to discern what his will is and what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. So we're going to close this morning in prayer. Um, And I I, I threw a couple questions on here. I'm not sure if we actually uh, have them. But a couple of questions I want to ask you as we close is this. Uh, where are we conforming to the culture of the world? That's the first question. Where are we conforming to the culture of the world? And, and maybe make that more personal. Where am I conforming to the culture of the world? And then the last question is just how can I renew my mind to discern God's good and perfect will? How can I, on a practical level... Uh, This week and every week, how can I begin to renew my mind to discern God's good and perfect will? So I want to give you some space just to to pray. Um, And I'm going to invite Robert up here. And um, I just want you to take a moment and to chew on these two questions and spend some time with the Lord as we close. Where are we conforming to the culture of the world... And how can I renew my mind to discern God's good and perfect will?